Hello and welcome to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. We are the ladies of Groundworks, Inc. I'm Carmen DeVito. And I'm Alice Marcus Creek. And we design, install, and maintain gardens in and around New York City, but we're coming to the end of the gardening season, aren't we, Alice? We are. We're wrapping it up and planting bulbs and... Getting our knees dirty for one more <laughs> month. That's about it. Yep. Anyway. And then um, we're inside. Yes. Like bears. We're going to be inside hibernating. Eating. Eating. <laughs> eating. Um, and today has a little bit of a food flavor. It's part of our... Um, Fruit of the Month Club, we're going to be talking about pears. And we're not talking about underwear. No, no. Um, and just wanted to remind everyone we're, we're broadcasting from two shipping containers in Bushwick, Brooklyn, outside of Roberta's Pizza at 261 Moore Street. And our sponsor today is Cabot Cheese. The New England and New York farm families who own Cabot Cooperative are offering um, Heritage Radio listeners a chance to win some of the world's best cheddar simply by calling in at 718-497-2128 or emailing us at info at heritageradionetwork.com. What a great way to start the holidays. We're going to be picking a winner from our program by November 28th. Cabot Creamery is a proud sponsor of what Heritage Radio is all about. So I want to, I want to see the phone start to ring. Come on, some red cheese. light. <laughs> and today, actually, we're talking about something that goes really well with cheese, which is pears, aren't we, Alice? Exactly. So welcome to our fruit series. Earlier, a few weeks ago, we spoke about apples, and today we're going to talk about pears. In the second half of our show, we have a, an amazing, a really, really fun guest. Um, she is a historic um, gastronomist. <laughs> um, she's joining us today, Sarah Lohman. Hello. Hi, Sarah, um, of the famed Four Pounds Flour blog. So she specializes in recipes of historic origin. And like an anthropologist, Sarah recreates recipes from turn of the century and earlier and later origins. She researches ingredients, hosts dinner parties. I want to get on that list. <laughs> Please, anytime. Are they secret? Are they one of those secret dinner parties? <laughs> Not yet. Okay. It really just started with my friends enjoying eating and drinking, and uh-huh. that, that's pretty much launched my career. So <laughs> That's a good way to start. Yeah, so. and what's, what's great is that I actually met Sarah at the Stone House in Brooklyn. She was catering um, a beer and bread um, event. Yes. And it five courses of bread, five courses of beer from 18th and early 19th century recipes. Yeah. And I worked with Brewery Lane, who is in Greenpoint, and they actually brewed beer from historic recipes, which wow. is incredible. There was a lot of fermentation that night. <laughs> so much yeast. <laughs> <laughs> Not to mention just the fun that yeah. I had meeting you. So I was really, really excited that you could join our show My today. Pleasure. And we're going to um, do a little kind of overview about pears, a little history, take a break, and then uh, talk about how to grow them, um, some botanical information, and then we're going to uh, um, ask you to share some knowledge about pears. I've got some great recipes. Great. So I'm looking forward to it. Cool. Okay, overview of pears. We cannot ignore the fact that the world production of, of the pear is only about one quarter that of the apple, um, indicating that the appreciation of the pear has not attained the universality or the depth or the appeal of its better-known relative. In many ways, the pear remains a problem fruit for growers and consumers. Um, Producers have to contend with this um, reduced hardiness when compared to the apple. It flowers early. It has a horrible disease called fire blight. Um, coddling moth is another disease. Um, 
and the inherent difficulty of handling a a crop that must be carefully picked and then ripened to achieve maximum quality. So this is a really delicate, refined fruit as compared to the apple, um, and therefore it's more precious as a commodity and more difficult to grow and cultivate. That's true. It's, It's softer, and I think of it as a more feminine fruit. Yeah, you know, sort of like uh, more delicate in flavor, more well, adult and mature. You I know, think than of an the apple. I think of the apple as um, an American, and I think of the pear as a Frenchman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I could. See. <laughs> you know, like it's a it's a brutish. The apple is a brutish fruit. Yeah, it's utilitarian. Pear? It's it's, yeah. it's it goes into lunchbox. You don't give your teacher a pear. No, you know, <laughs> it's it's it bruises and it's sensitive. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Well, I have some more other quick fun facts about the pear. They're a member of the rose family, botanically speaking. If you look at a pear flower, it has five um, petals, mm-hmm. um, just like a rose. Um, pears, some of them have thorns. Yes, that's true. Um, they can live for about 100 years, but they're usually replaced in orchards after 30 or 40 years because they stop being as um, productive and as tasty. Mm-hmm. Um, they're also a good source of vitamin C and fiber, like the apple. Um, pears ripen better off the tree and they ripen from the inside out, which is really interesting. Right. Um, in fact, a good way to ripen them is in a brown paper bag at room temperature. And there are more than 3,000 varieties of pears grown in the world, with Bartlett pears being the most popular variety in the United States. And those are the ones that are used for dried pear products and for canning. Right. And they're, they are very tasty. Even my 11-year-old will eat Bartlett pears. Yeah, pears are really great. Um, we actually seldom get to consume the perfect pear fruit um, as its optimum state of maturity and stage of, of, of ripeness. You know? Yeah. It's, it's hard to actually buy a fruit, a pear fruit that is perfectly... No, they pick them green. They pick them green because they're too soft to ship otherwise, you know? Yeah, and what what gardeners and farmers are really looking for in terms of market is the perfect proportion of texture, flavor, acidity, and sweetness. So um, here in New York, when we're not at the farmer's market, (laughs) we know and we're most familiar with the pear as a stately ornamental street tree, as in the Bradford pear and other selections of Pyrrhus caliana. Um, and we all know that street tree for its elegant pyramidal form, its red fall color, and the white flowers. It's the first to bloom and then the last yeah. to drop. Everybody wants that as a street tree. It, you know. The the problem with, with this as a street tree though is the you know, they, they branch low, so mm-hmm. it's a little difficult to you, you know, to control their lifespan because they branch so low and they therefore become weak. But as consumers, of course, we love this fruit. Um, Fresh, cooked, spiced, fermented, dried, um, even grown in a bottle and smothered by brandy. (laughs) Yeah, didn't your brother do (laughs) that? My brother did that at Dumberton Oaks last year. Yeah. Um, And we're convinced that all of these attempts to overcome the pear defects, um, be be them natural or imposed, are worth the struggle of the pear. So a little fun history. The origin and the early history of the pear is uh, described very well in a book um, published in 1921 called The Pear of New York by Hendrick. 
And this show is going to um, take a lot of information from that book as well. When when I was doing my research, I found a great paper by um, a historian um, and a botanist called Jules Janik, and he's at Purdue in the Department of uh, Horticulture and Landscape Architecture. Um, so a lot of this material is coming from a paper that he wrote. So just want to paraphrase. Um, so the genus Paris is native to the northern hemisphere of the Old World, and it consists of about 20 species, of which half are found in Europe, North Africa, and Asia Minor, and half um, in northern Asia. So these have given rise to two groups of the domesticated pear. The first soft flesh European pear is um, been a common fruit in the West, and is considered part of the cultural heritage of Europe. In fact, in present-day Spain, there is a juvenile expression, esto es la pera, meaning this is the pear, when you're talking about a particularly wonderful or enjoyable situation or an experience. Oh, I think we should uh, so we should take that on, Alice. Hey, eso la pera. This is the pear. <laughs> this is the pear. <laughs> Imagine saying that. <laughs> <laughs> what when our clients come p- this complain. oh this is the pair <laughs> then they'd be like what are you they talking? would totally <laughs> flip out or we just say it in spanish esto es la pera <laughs> it's true it's the pair <laughs> so the precise origin of the european pair is still unknown but it has been with us since prehistoric times and dried slices um, have been unearthed in Swiss cave dwellings. They unearth all kinds <laughs> of stuff in the Swiss cave dwellings, don't they? Watches. They really do. Sarah, yeah. They have found like everything. Every scraps of food. Either yeah. they were really slovenly <laughs> or they just ate everything they could get their hands on. And then cast it aside and drew on the walls, I might add, too. <laughs> this pair, somebody wrote on the dwelling, esto es la pera. This is the pair. All right, we have to stop. In Asia, the crisp-fleshed Asiatic pears, um, principally Pyrus pyrifolia or Pyrus serotona, um, this kind of pear goes back uh, centuries, 2,500 to 3,000 years ago, and has been chronicled in Chinese writings, Sai Jing, from at least 1,200 years ago. The pear was long considered a delicacy for the wealthy, along with the peach and the apricot. Um, there's a famous book, Ti Ming Yao Su, written by Chia Siyu in the 6th century, which summarizes pear growing in the previous 115-year period. Um, although, seed, although the seed of pears was found as early as the year 200 to 300 in Japan, the earliest written records are from a chapter published in 720 from Nihon Shuku, which is the Japanese book of records. Can I just interject here and say that I prefer the European pears better? What do you think? Uh, as far as pears, you yeah. know, I have to admit a bit of pear ignorance, That, oh. but I would love to do a taste test, a side-by-side yeah. side pear tasting. I actually think I prefer the the european varieties too i have done the taste test oh and there's not there's not much taste in my opinion perhaps we've gotten some bad pears in the in the asian pear it 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 just didn't have any body to it i know i guess maybe because we're used sometimes you go to the market and you see these big bartlets i mean they're massive they're like a half a pound fruit sir you know Mm -hmm. and to me i guess maybe 
maybe it's an acquired taste, you know, like lychee nuts or something. But yeah. I just never really got into loving the well, Asian and I, pears. And I think we've, you know, we were probably first exposed to the yeah. European variety, yeah. which is much more... Um, it, it is a delicate taste, but it's there's flesh in there. Yeah. You can taste it. It's yeah. sweet. And I didn't find that in the and Asian. And this is such a good discussion to have, too, because I feel like, in general, we're much more educated as far as apples and which mm-hmm. apples are best for baking and preserving and jellying and the whole That's thing. That's true. But I feel like, you know, apples and pears are buddies. They're buddies in history. Uh, anything you can do with apples, you could do with pears, but so few people know what varieties are best for which ones, too. Exactly. Exactly. In antiquity, the first mention of the pear is found in Homer um, in the ninth century BC um, in his poem, The Odyssey. And he confirms that the pear was cultivated in Greece as early as 3,000 years ago. The pear is included as one of the many gifts of the gods which grew in the garden hmm. um, of the legendary home country. So, and the pear as temptation. You can't, you can't really talk about fruit without you know, the idea of the apple um, or Adam and Eve. And actually, in that story of Adam and Eve, it was never... Um, confirmed that the fruit they were talking about is an apple. Well, some people thought it was a pomegranate because that would be more appropriate for the region. Exactly, exactly. But St. Augustine actually adopts the pear as the sinful fruit because he had a... He had his own um, kind of personal issue with a pear, and actually, he, <laughs> he had a lot of issues. <laughs> but he he remembered stealing them as a young boy, and ah. and he always felt guilt about that. So he has, in his mind, adopted the pear as the temptuous fruit. It's so interesting. That that, yeah, interesting. that is really interesting. Um, my parents um, grew up on farms in Italy, Sarah. So they grew up with fruit trees and pretty much growing everything that they were going to eat, including the livestock, you know? And one of the stories that I always remember as a child, and my dad always telling me, they didn't have, you know, obviously any kind of electronic media. They, they didn't have any toys at all. Their fun was to steal fruit from their neighbor's trees. That was their, like... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Their, that was their adolescent and childhood hijinks because there was no candy. Fruit mm-hmm. was the treat and the temptation. Mm-hmm. So... They, you know, it was a close-knit community, and of course the neighbors knew who had done it, you right. know? Yeah, it's very obvious. <laughs> yeah, so that's what they would do at night. They would go and pick other people's fruits. Pears. Right, yeah. yeah. Pears and apples and grapes, and for example, if one neighbor had an amazing apricot tree and you didn't have apricots, you would do that. Help you would, yourself. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. you <know? laughs> Beware of dog, you yeah. know? And but what it, do we do in the United States? We skinny dip in the neighbor's pools. Graffiti. And we, and we tip cows. <laughs> So St. Augustine wasn't too far uh, off, you know? Yeah. Um, The pear, of course, has a great tradition in France, and there appears to be an explosion of diversity from the 16th to the 19th centuries of the cultivar. Um, Desserts, known as the French father of agriculture, describes various types in his writing um, entitled The The Theater of Agriculture from 1608. And he writes, There is no tree among all those planted which abounds so much in different kinds of fruits as the pear tree, whose different sorts are innumerable and their different qualities wonderful. For or far from the month of May to that of December, pears that are good to eat are found on the trees. In considering particularly the different shapes, sizes, colors, flavors, and odors of the pear, 
Who will not adore the wisdom of the creator? Pears are found round, long, pointed, blunt, small, and large. Gold, silver, vermilion, and satin green are found as colors among the pears. Sugar, honey, cinnamon, clove flavor them. They smell of musk, amber, and chive. In short, these are excellent fruits that an orchard would not be worthwhile in a place where pear trees do not thrive. Don't you think that describes the flavor of them, the variety of flavor, really well? Absolutely. And when I think of pears, I often associate with the, them with the holidays, too. You know, you mm-hmm. get the box of pears and you're eating them all through yeah. November and December. And I love that, that the pears in themselves have that earthiness and spiciness, the same flavor profile that you associate with the holidays, too. Mm-hmm. And that they ripen earlier, mm-hmm. actually. So there are pears available in spring. I know. I do think about them as a, as a very late fall or early winter mm-hmm. fruit. Yeah. You know, maybe because the varieties that were growing, well, they're growing them in the Northwest primarily. Mm-hmm. That's where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, and California has a mm-hmm. huge pear growing. Um, yeah, we'll talk about know? that. Um, the pear is also considered a sacred symbol, and that might be the holiday kind of usage of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, in Egyptian antwi- antiquity, the pear was sacred to Isis. In Christian symbolism, the pear frequently appears in connection with Christ's love for mankind. Um, it's a, it's a symbol. Um, in China, the pear is symbolic of justice, longevity, purity, wisdom, and benevolent administration. <laughs> Maybe New York State needs some of that. <laughs> Let's start planting some pear trees in Albany. Maybe we'll we? send them to Cuomo. <laughs> um, in Korea, the pear typifies grace, nobility, and purity, and the pear tree um, is a symbol of comfort and fertility to women. Good fortune in exams, wisdom and health, and the pear flower with its white color is symbolic of the face of beautiful women and the transience of petals is a metaphor for the sadness and the coldness of departure. Wow. Yeah. Um, in Western, in Western uh, symbolism, the language of flowers, um, the pear blossom is the birthday flower for the date of August 17th which symbolizes affection. And in many parts of the world, the pear symbolizes the human heart, which it resembles. Not to mention the shape of people as pears. Well, I was going (laughs) to say that. Whenever they describe women's bodies, you know, don't they always... Pear-shaped. Pear or apple. Apple. Are you an apple or are you a pear? pear? But actually, I think medically, it's better to be a pear. Really? Yeah, than an apple. Because as an apple, your organs are more surrounded. Your internal organs are more surrounded by fat. Whereas a pear, it's more evened out, and it's better to be heavier on the bottom. Really? That's what I tell myself. (laughs) (laughs) So in art history, of course, the pear's place is a huge subject in painting and religious art. Um, It was found in the ruins of Pompeii. The pear fruit is found in Roman mosaics and in sculpted fruit um, wreaths, commonly used on sarcophagi. Um, the symbolic use of the pear was carried over into, quish- into Christian art, as in the Madonna of the Pear by Giovanni Bellini, which is a great, great oh, it's painting. such a beautiful painting. And there the pear sits just very, uh, I don't even know, it's, it's mesmerizing. It, it's just glowing there at the I bottom. I know, it's a very interesting symbol yeah, for the of, Madonna. It's found in um, Flemish flower and fruit paintings from the 15th 
to the 17th century. Of course, Vincent van Gogh painted both the flowering tree as well as the fruit. And the sculptor Fernando Botero uses the pear in paintings and in sculpture um, to emphasize the obese and grace um, of people. And fruit. And fruit. <laughs> yeah. So I, this this is one more fun story, um, which is uh, from the 19th century. Um, I think I think we all kind of remember the story of Lizzie Borden. Um, this is the the tragic case. Um, she was the accused murderess of Fall River, Massachusetts, and this is recounted in countless books and novels as a ballet and as an opera, and a movie and a play. But it's memorialized in a macabre ditty that goes like this and maybe you've heard this lizzie borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax when she saw what she had done she gave her father 41 so the that little saying is actually not quite accurate the stepmother received 18 hatchet blows in reality and mr borden received 11 lizzie testified at the trial that at the time her father was murdered um in August of 1892, she was actually up in the barn loft next to the house looking for lead to make sinkers for a fishing trip. And at the crucial time when her father was being axed, she testified that she spent her time consuming pears. <laughs> so she was acquitted. Now, I don't know if it was like the power of the pear or, <laughs> or what, but uh, obviously they didn't have enough evidence to... To, to convict her, but that's a pretty horrific story. And I, I wonder what pear cultivars mention. Uh, they never mentioned. They never it, right? did. No, no. Lizzie, what pear did you eat? Yeah, <laughs> what did it taste like? Yeah. So, um, Carm, you want to talk a little bit about pears in the United States, and then we'll take a break. Mm-hmm. Pears in the United States, um, as we mentioned before, there are about three thousand varieties, but Bartlett is the most popular. And then comes Anjou, Bosque, Camus, and the Asian pears, which I didn't mean to dismiss. <laughs> <laughs> but you did. <laughs> um, but I show me a pear that tastes good, and I'll, I'll change my mind. Um, so they come in a lot of colors and shapes and flavors. Um, and the ancestor of today's popular pear varieties actually comes from southeastern Europe and western Asia. And the first pear tree was planted in America in about 1620. Um, in the early 1700s, pears were nicknamed butterfruit because of their soft texture. And those early colonists brought the first pear trees to America's eastern settlements where they thrived until they got these crop blights, which proved too severe to sustain widespread cultivation. Fortunately, the pear trees brought west to Oregon and Washington by the pioneers in the 1800s thrived in that unique um, agricultural conditions in the Pacific Northwest. So they have better air circulation, you know, less humidity and just the right amount of rain for these trees. Um, the first arrival of those trees to Oregon and Washington came with the pioneers and they, can, they came via, as Alice said, via the Lewis and Clark Trail. Um, most of the pioneers settled along the Columbia River in Oregon's Hood River Valley, and they found those ideal growing conditions. Um, vast orchards grow there today in the, in the shadow of Mount Hood. They have like the volcanic soil, the abundant water, warm days, and cool nights, and that creates the sort of perfect conditions for growing the varieties found there. Um, today's Northwest pear varieties are the same or similar to those first cultivated in France and Belgium, where they were prized for their flavor and their texture. And they pair well with seafood and wine. And I have to say, sometimes when I come home really tired from work 
and I don't know what to cook, <laughs> I will actually eat pears, cheese, and bread. Oh, yeah. And a glass of wine. And to me, that's like one of the most wonderful meals to have in the winter. Don't you think, Sarah? I really agree. I do. The right kind of cheese and the right kind of an amount of wine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Just> most <laughs> important. So, Esto um, es la perla. Es la perla. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. And as my 11-year-old goes, what's for dinner? Pears, Pears. cheese, and wine, Matt. <laughs> 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 and what am I going to eat? Um, so anyway, more than 95% of the pears sold in the U.S. are grown in the Pacific Northwest and in Northern California. And right now, there are still 1,600 pear growers in that area. And of course, Oregon's official state fruit is the pear. Um, combined annual fresh pear, not canned pear harvest for Washington and Oregon currently averages over 582,000 tons. And that's just for two states. Yeah. Now, Washington and Oregon export about 35% of their pear crop to more than 50 countries around the world. So we're going to take a little bit of a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about how to grow them yourself. Welcome back. You're listening to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. That was a song called Pears by Don't Eat Sky. <laughs> and song. Uh, we're talking about pears. Carmen, let's talk uh, about some tips for growing pear trees. Yeah, so you need some space um, to grow them. And of course, you need two trees to cross-pollinate, like most fruit trees. You can't just have one. You have to have something in the neighborhood. Um, now, they need good cir- good air circulation. Um, they prefer to be sort of in an area that's a little bit elevated and sloping. And that's because the trees bloom very early, as Alice was saying. And those flowers can be damaged in the spring by that frosty air, which kind of settles in the low-lying In the area, valleys, In right. the valleys. And they like to be grown in sort of heavier soil that's kind of clay loam with sort of a porous subsoil or into medium or sandy loam. They will not thrive on ground that is saturated with water. Right. Um, so they can be planted in the fall in mild climates or in the spring in cooler ones. Um, they should be set about 20 feet apart, except for the more vigorous varieties, which need to be spaced about 25 feet apart. And it's important to soak the roots in water for 30 to 60 minutes before setting in the ground. The hole for the tree should be large enough to spread the roots about naturally. And one thing I want to mention is, um, along with apples and some other uh, tree fruits, pears do very well as espalier, which is a French or Belgian method of training fruit trees flat up against Mm -hmm. a wall. That's a very old method. It goes back to the Middle Ages. um, And they actually produce very good fruit that way in a small amount of space. Right. Um, there's a great supplier out in Long Island called Luthart where you can buy them already trained. Mm. So if you're an urban gardener and you don't have a lot of space to allow a tree, you know, to have 20 foot of 20 foot spread or 30 foot right. spread in canopy, can, in yeah. canopy, you can do it with espalier. We actually have a few clients on, um, on rooftops that are, you know, 
kind of in, in very specialized enclosed areas that have espaliers, and they do fabulously beautifully yeah you have to know what you're doing you do have to continue to train them properly and make sure that you don't cut off the fruiting parts at yeah the, the wrong pruning time the pruning takes is, some experience w- yeah but it is really beautiful at the cloisters they have some yeah growing that way and they're really lovely now a little bit more about the soil um you have to work it in and around the roots to eliminate air pockets um there shouldn't be sort of like a depression around the tree when you finish planting and the tree, as all trees, should be set at the same level as it was pre- previously growing. Never bury trees too yeah. deep. That's death. That's the number one kind of mistake that people make is they bury their tree too deep. And then disease spreads and bacteria. And it's dying. It slowly dies. Mm-hmm. You know, you should never It's bury. better to plant a little higher, mm-hmm. keep that crown above the soil grade level. Yeah. And you can always add soil later, add more soil, but you can't, you know, mm-hmm. you can't dig up a big tree that's planted too deep. And they always settle a bit anyway. Um, in terms of fertilization, um, when it's very important to know when to fertilize them and to, n- to not sort of achieve too much growth, you know, overactive growth, which makes them sort of susceptible to that horrible fire blight that Alice was talking about. Um, When the tree is first planted, a half a cup of balanced fertilizer can be placed in a two-foot circle around the tree, at least six inches from the trunk. Um, And then you do that each spring until the fourth year, at which time you can use like two or three cups set around the tree. And there's something called the drip line. Some of you who are gardeners know this. It's the line where the rain drips from the leaves of the tree. And as the tree grows, that is the circle that you put the fertilizer in because you know, the underground root system of the tree mirrors the crown of the tree. Right. So you don't want want to stimulate the growth. growth. You don't want to like, you know, mass all of your fertilizer around the trunk no because you want you want it to reach towards further out exactly so some people make the mistake of putting fertilizer right around the trunk and that's a a bad idea as the tree grows it doesn't feed the roots that are actually actively going out and seeking um, nutrients and water Um, pruning fruit trees is definitely an art and it's usually done in the winter it should be light and just enough to develop a strong tree that's able to handle the weight of the of the fruits When a one-year-old tree is first planted, it should be cut back to about three and a half to four feet high, and all the side branches should be removed. This is to compensate for the loss of roots during the planting process. At the end of the growing season, four to six main branches are chosen. They should be pointing in different directions and spaced about six inches apart. You want to have an open tree so that Mm -hmm. the fruits have room to grow and also to get enough sunlight you know, and not crowded together. And so that it's a balanced production of fruit. Mm-hmm. Um, pruning the subsequent year should be light and also uh, always in mind to keep a well-shaped tree with strong branches. Weak crotches are liable to, to breakage as they grow heavier, Alice. Sorry, you I said can't. crotch. <laughs> Got to laugh. Sorry. <laughs> it's my eight-year-oldness coming that, out. We're talking about the horticultural term. Okay. <laughs> um, so how do you prevent a weak crotch? Let me tell you. <laughs> you prevent it by cutting off one of the branches while it's still young. And on trees that are fruit-bearing age, central branches that are thin and weak should be removed as well as any that are blight-infected. And you'll be able to see that um, on on the foliage you'll see spotting and and curled up leaves and everything um so as i was saying about pollination pears are self sterile and need more than one variety planted within 40 or 50 feet in order to cross pollinate of course uh, pears are pollinated by insects honeybees and many native pollinators including 
several species of solitary bees serve as effective pollinators. So if you plant a fruit tree, you're not also you're not only you know giving yourself something wonderful to eat, possibly a shade tree, but you're also helping to support the bee population. Let me also mention that there's a lot of um, kind of discussion about the smell of pear trees. Some people find it absolutely putrid. They they think it smells like fish. And others are, are more tolerant of it. So it's something you might want to consider before plopping a pear tree down in your front I suburban never, yard. I never noticed that else. You're talking about the flowers smelling The flower, bad? yeah. A lot of people object to it. Um, hmm. It's just when I was a kid and I was working in nurseries, a lot of people used to come in and complain about how interesting about the smell and others didn't it just you know it's a personal tolerance but it was definitely always a subject <laughs> wow i always think of the ginkgo as being the the foulest, stinky one the stinko the female and is that more with the fruit with the ginkgo yeah it's yeah. the female fruit that's why yeah. they're only planting males now as street trees right but you still see people collecting it i think we talked about that on a previous show mm-hmm. so um we talked a little bit about training, and this is very, very important, um, especially when the tree is young. And we can post probably more details on um, our Facebook fan page about that. And I want to get into a little bit more um, about the dwarf trees. Um, pear trees, like other fruit trees, are produced by grafting the desired variety, such as a Bartlett, onto a rootstock, which is sort of the trunk you know, and the root part. Um, of a of a sturdier, hardier variety. Yeah, they actually use quince, I think, for the rootstock. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you can see where it's actually grafted on. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You can see sort of like a swelling along the trunk. That's how you know. Um, pear seedlings are commonly used as rootstocks, as Alice saying, and also quince. And they produce trees that are reasonably hardy and vigorous. Um, they're normally spaced 15 to 20 feet apart in the home garden. Trees grafted onto seedling rootstocks can be quite tall. Dwarf trees, dwarf pear trees are produced by grafting pear varieties onto selected dwarfing rootstocks. Quince roots, as Alice said, are traditionally used to create these dwarf trees. And the result is a tree approximately half the size of those seedling rootstock trees. And dwarf pear trees can be planted only eight feet apart. But you should know that even the dwarf trees are quite substantial in size. I mean, mm-hmm. a full-size tree that's not dwarf can be 30 or 40 feet tall. Um, a dwarf one is is still 15 or 20 feet tall. So you really have to space, plan, space yeah. it and plan for that, you know. Because you need to. <laughs> yes, it's true. And when people think dwarf, they think eight feet or, you know, seven or eight. They're not realizing that it's still a pretty substantial tree. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk a little bit about uh, varieties. We talked about Bartlett is sort of like the, the standard for flavor. It's the one that ripens kind of early September in colder climates. Bosk um, is a good pollinator for the Bartlett because it also ripens after. So you can have a Bosk and a Bartlett and have two different, very different tasting tree uh, fruits. Um, Clapp's favorite is um, one of the late summer pears. It's very large with good flavor. Um, but like the Bartlett and the Bosque, it's very susceptible to an important bacterial disease called fire blight, which can really do, wreak havoc on your tree. Um, Seckel is also available in the markets, and it's a very small, sweet, firm pear that may be partially um, self-fruitful. So if you don't have space for two trees, you could try the Seckel, and those are those sort of brown and green ones that you see in the market. Um, if you live in a colder location, you can try Flemish Beauty, 
Harrow Delight, Nova, and Luscious are sort of more hardy varieties. Um, if you're looking for one that's more resistant to uh, fire blight and also has pretty good fruit quality, you can try Magnus and Moon Glow, as well as uh, Seckle and Honey Sweet. So I'd like to have Sarah now talk a little bit about how to use those pears. Yes, you've bought your pears. You've grown your pears. You've stared at your pears. You (laughs) you have your pears. Well, we're going to do a little bit of an adventure today because um, I'm excited to be here talking about pears, but I didn't have any pear recipes already kind of in my back pocket. I'd never done a lot of historic cooking with pears. So what I did is I went to this amazing website called Feeding America, which has this incredible searchable archive of about 100. 50 years of American recipes. Oh, cool. So I asked it about pears. It's all, you can search it. It's amazing. We're in the future. The future is now. So um, I have four different recipes here. They're all very different. Um, and I'm going to put them all up on my blog, which is fourpoundsflower.com. So if you hear one that you think is interesting, I'm going to put the historic recipe up. But Great. I figured we could talk about the recipes, and you could see which ones you think is would be an interesting one to try. Cool. I'll give it a whirl, and then after this program, I'll put it up on my blog, and well, everyone can see the results. Good. Great. Fun. That's the plan. Okay, so the first one is kind of, it's very, very simple, which is one of the reasons I like it. And it's for pear ice. It just says, great, sweetened and freeze well-flavored pears. <laughs> That's easy. So it won't be the Asian ones because it means well-flavored. <laughs> now, Sarah, how old is that recipe? This recipe is from 1877. It's from a book called Buckeye Cookery. So wow. it's very, it's so simple, but I took a moment and I was like, I've never heard of that before. You're almost making a sorbet yeah. directly from the raw pear fruit. So you're just freezing the fruit. Mm-hmm. You're how just shaving it. Shaving it. And sweetening it, it and freezing it. Exactly. Well, that's really interesting considering at that time period, not very many people had refrigeration yeah. or ice. Well, there were ice cream makers, and ice cream has been so popular since really, since the 1800. Jefferson loved ice cream. Dolly Madison loved ice cream. So it was kind of a, a, a summertime treat to ah. be able to get ice and produce the ice cream. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's essentially what you'd be doing here. Right, right. We're lucky we have freezers, so it can go in. But that actually brings up an interesting idea because... Um, this might be better off made in an ice cream maker as opposed to being frozen in a block. You know, you mm-hmm. need that churning action to get it to be more like sorbet. So right. that's recipe number one. Okay. The next two actually come from the same book. It's a book called Aunt Babette's Cookbook, and it's one of the earliest Jewish cookbooks. Okay. And I actually love whoever Aunt Babette was. I don't think she was, I think she's not the real person. My Bubba Babette? Yes. <laughs> Pretty much. Because she has like some just wonderful turns of phrase in her recipe writing. And I'll get to that in a moment. So her recipe is for brandied pears, which Mm. is uh, for... I'm writing this down. (laughs) Make notes, make notes. (laughs) Um, It's not only means a flavoring, but it means a preservation. Mm -hmm. She tells you, you keep them whole, you pair them, you peel them, but you leave the stem on. And you cook it in a simple syrup, essentially sugar water, until quote unquote, so tender you can pierce with a straw. (gasps) Now that is tender. And at that point, you pull the fruit out, you still put it in glass jars, you boil down uh, the water with spices so it becomes a sweet syrup. And at the last moment, you add brandy and put everything over the pears and let them set. I don't think she specifies how long you should let them set, at least overnight and probably indefinitely. But what I love about this recipe, it says at the very end, um, allow a pint of best brandy to every four pounds of fruit. Use none but the best. If you cannot afford brandied fruit, it is no disgrace, but don't try and put up fruit in whiskey or some other cheap (laughs) stuff. (laughs) 
I love that. That is great. She's spicy herself. She's a little spicy. <laughs> but at the same time, I read that and I was like, whiskey pears. Yeah. I like that idea. So if I did that one, I think I would try whiskey pear against Aunt Babette's better judgment. Yeah, whiskey pear sounds kind of nice. Sounds interesting, right? So there's Aunt Babette and she also suggests, um, she has this great recipe for fricasseed rabbit. Um, which you fricassee the rabbit with celery, parsley, onion, and ginger. And she recommends serving that next to a pear compote as well. So that's something else I was considering. So then the last one is even, is probably the most bizarre of all of them. It's called buttermilk soup or pop in quotes. It describes it as being ethnic. I can only guess it's ethnically German because they talk about Germans later, but I've never heard of this until looking up pears today. So the recipe says um, it's buttermilk, a tablespoon flour, a tablespoon butter, a little salt. Bring gradually to a boil, stirring constantly to prevent curdling, and pour on fried bread. Now, the variation she gives is that you say... um, when the buttermilk soup is done, you add half the quantity of cooked pears. So you would essentially make a pear compote, stirring it into this buttermilk soup, and then that's going on a French toast, essentially. Wow. So, that sounds, I think that sounds amazing. Rich. Really, rich. Yeah. really rich. Um, and I, it's, out of all these, it's the one where I can't quite imagine what the flavor combination is going to be like either. So, um so there are the recipes. What do, what do you? Which one do you like the best, Alice? I like the I like the fried bread. <laughs> <laughs> I like the brandied pear. The brandied yeah. pear. Yeah, right. I feel like do- the brandied pear. I feel like there's so many variations of that. Mm. Like every everybody has kind of done that. That's mm. why um, the the rabbit sounds really interesting too. Because the ginger and rabbits. That's, that's a really interesting that combination. Is, I mean, my I, I grew up eating rabbit reluctantly mm-hmm. in my family. Italians eat it a lot. Mm-hmm. I, I don't serve it to my family now. <laughs> um, but I, I bet you could substitute chicken for the rabbit, don't you think? I think you could. And in New York, I feel like rabbit is not so hard to come by. Maybe. No, there's a at the, at yeah. the uh, farmer's market. Oh, you market, can definitely get it. There's a yeah. rabbit vendor. Yeah. I'm sure you could do chicken. But yeah, the idea of ginger. I'd never seen a combination of ginger and rabbit. Yeah, yeah that doesn't sound right. But the ginger and pear, of course, is a... Of course, is a traditional pairing. That's pretty classic. Yeah. And with, with fresh ginger, that could be quite tasty, too. Yeah. So the answer is you're interested in, in all of them. Is that? Yeah, <laughs> I think so. Post them all. <laughs> I, I will put them up, and I'll give some thought to which one I'd like to, to give a try. Do you have apple suggestions? Which apples you think? Excuse me. Oh, my goodness. I said the, the unspeakable word on the pear show. said the show. brutish word. <laughs> this, this is all about the ladies today. Do you have a pear that you would suggest that you think would be the best pear for brandying or baking or compote? Well, I always go back to the Bartlett because yeah. it's more, mm-hmm. f- it's firmer. That would probably be, you know. I lo- the Bosch I like- is really good too. Yeah, mm-hmm. that that's one. A Bosch, yeah. That's a really nice pear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's often poached, right? It has a beautiful shape. You often yeah. see that. So that would be nicer for something for preserving. Let's yeah, say. I think so. My father yeah. would just roast them, um, mm. you know, with sausage and, and carrots. And like he would just kind of make a whole mix and roast it. And um, these it, recipes that I came across are the ones that were a little bit different and more yeah, complicated. Yeah. But the really the, the beauty of a pear is you can throw it in a pan with some sugar and some spices, put it in the oven, and it's going to come out and it's going to be delicious. And you can eat it just as it is or you can eat it with something else. Exactly. That's great. It's like the tofu of fruit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just think, I'm just... It um, adopts I must anything. be hungry now because I'm thinking about pear and Roquefort right now. Yeah. <laughs> As we're and speaking. wine, of course. Yes, or perhaps wine. whiskey. Why not? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Exactly. Well, thank you for pairing with us today, Sarah. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> what a good show this was. And um, please join us on our Facebook fan page. We're going to put a link to fourpoundsflower.com. And swing on by Four Pounds Flower and see how my pear antics turn out. Yes. Yeah. And please let us know what you think Yes. Um, about, about Sarah's recipes on our fan page. Um, if you missed any part of the show and you want to listen to it again... You can go to uh, HeritageRadioNetwork.com's website archive or download it um, via podcast iTunes. And thanks for listening. Again, our sponsor was Cabot Cheese. And thanks to Roberta's Pizza and Jack Inslee and Nat Wiener. We dig plants on the Heritage Radio Network. Happy gardening. Happy gardening.